0: Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my chocolate factory. And I should warn you that one of us always tells the truth, and one of us always lies.
1: No running in the hallway. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Fans Labyrinth, the podcast where we talk about your favorite indie movies and genre flicks. My name's Joseph, and this is my co-host,
0: Lydia. That was good. That was a vibe.
1: Yeah. So today we decided to switch things up a bit based on my sort of inclinations, (laughs) which is uh, I want to do an animated movie. I want to do something more upbeat, but still within our kind of indie flair. So we decided on Studio Ghibli, and uh, I want to pick something that was like like one of the more obscure ones. But, off the
0: beaten path a little bit. yeah.
1: But I wanted it to be one that was still, in the end, Miyazaki, mm-hmm. who's the guy who did all of the, the ones everyone knows. Howl's Moving Castle, Spirited yeah. Away, Princess Mononoke.
0: The very driving force of Ghibli.
1: Therefore, we ended up watching Whisper of the Heart. And we will talk about that later on in the episode, and probably talk about a bunch of Studio Ghibli stuff in general. Yeah. But... Before that, we like to chat about some stuff we've been watching, some stuff going on, maybe not in our personal lives, but just, you know, fun stuff. What's it going on <laughs> in the media, things like that. But yeah, politics has been way more chill recently.
0: I mean, has it though? Which is nice.
1: Or well what do you mean? I thought well, I, I thought th- 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 it was.
0: I mean, I guess, but I feel like, I, I think you could take the Wall Street bets, like Robin Hood shit oh, yeah, and like yeah. really, fe- that's yeah. still political. Like that's still very yes. in a political it's space a new in mind. Yeah.
1: That stuff's really cool.
0: I mean, I kind of loved that at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone's obsession was, what was it, Animal Crossing or whatever. Yes. And then by the middle of the pandemic, everyone was all about Among Us. And now our new mm-hmm. favorite video game collectively is just like day trading.
1: <laughs> yes. that's that's the journey into the video game of day trading yeah <laughs> although you're not wrong but no i i won't lie i've i've been trying to sign up for
0: i mean i i guess just don't do robin hood
1: well yeah yeah i have to look into what it is and whatnot so i i picked one i won't say what it is but tried it out but basically i forgot my password my bank account it was a whole mess because oh it's, it's saved on my computer <laughs>
0: it's just like oh a, my god That's, like, the most millennial response as to why you didn't get involved in, like, the class warfare revolution. I forgot my own banking password. All right. I guess that's a reason.
1: (laughs) Regardless, I do think it's a pretty cool thing. Fuck Wall Street, all that bullshit.
0: yeah, absolutely. This is, like, Occupy Wall Street 2.0. Instead of, like, pitching tents outside of, like, fucking hedge fund buildings, we're all just stealing their money.
1: But this is a positive news story. What I was sort of referring to was that I think with like there has been since the you know the attempted coup and revolution things have not felt heart palpitating level like what the f is going on in the U.S. for. I mean, yeah, there's
0: been no recent like internal terrorist attacks, so, <laughs> so there's so there's that I guess, but
1: yeah, that's I a that's a sign of positivity. No terrorist attacks.
0: I, don't, I mean, I think like. Robin Hood's reaction to the whole, like, Wall Street bets thing and then, like, essentially illegally shutting down the ability to, like, trade specific stocks to a specific portion of the American population and then, like, illegally selling off these people's stocks in order to essentially bail out, like, big banks is pretty fucked up. Like, that's pretty bad. That's that's exceedingly bad. Um, and we know in, yeah. like you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever, all of these big hedge funds and banks are going to be like, well, uh, hey, government, you're going to have to give us, like, $8 trillion to bail us the fuck out because otherwise we're going to ruin your economy again for, like, the 17th time in the last fucking decade.
1: Yeah. Fun stuff. But, yeah, I I mean, it's, it's cool news. But, yeah, it's also fucked up based on the reactions that have been happening to it. We already kind of know this episode is going to be a banked episode, so this will be crazy old news by oh my the God, time yeah. this comes out. So let's turn to more evergreen perennial topics, oh uh, which I don't have a segue for. <laughs> so.
0: We're going to talk about things going on in our lives and in the news, and then immediately oh like, God. oh, it's going to be a banked episode, so it's going to be boring.
1: Okay, So well, like just okay. movies then? So-
0: <laughs> TV shows?
1: <laughs> well, okay, I do I do have a thing, so... I have access to a Canopy account. It's a uh, fancy movies from a library account. Yeah. Stuff that you could sell your library on getting for you or whatever. And so they have a bunch of Criterion Collection movies. And as <laughs> we've talked about much stuff, but I love the aesthetic of the Criterion yeah. Collection. And there's about five-ish movies on it that I've wanted to watch for a long time now. And so I finally got around. Is at least one, one
0: of them an in Ingmar Bergman?
1: No, actually, but that but that's because okay. no, no, that's because they don't have any of his on. So that
0: seems weird. That seems weird that they wouldn't have at least one Ingmar Bergman.
1: Yeah, they only have about thirty-ish Criterion things, and Criterion Collection has about a thousand something movies. So it's like, uh, yeah, it's it's a very limited selection. I'd love for them to have more.
0: I mean, some of the dumbest shit. Isn't I I love the the vibe that Criterion Collection gives off, where it's like these hyper pretentious art house films are the only things yes, that are in the Criterion Collection, and that's like a hundred percent not true. I'm pretty sure you can get like you, there's a bunch of horror movies in the Criterion Collection, like a bunch mm-hmm. of the John Hughes movies are in. The, like you can get like fucking Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, which I do think is a phenomenal movie, but you can get a Criterion Collection version of like those kinds of movies too. So it's not it it's it's curated this like really intense academically pretentious aesthetic and it's yes. literally just like fancy versions of standard movies and a, and like a handful of arthouse films
1: i yeah I'm, I'm more in between i agree with you that it has some of that stuff but look they do put on an air of pretension they do. they do have the criterion closet picks and whatnot and they do they picked up a lot of these and like movies that aren't on streaming services which are more pretentious yes. foreign films films that have influenced directors stuff like that
0: like really it's very like library of congress esque where it's anything that's Mm -hmm. had kind of a a, an impact culturally or within pop culture within either america or globally or specific region will probably be good enough to be in a in a criterion collection and i i do love the stuff that you get like if you buy a criterion it comes with a significant amount of like special features there's usually like A really cool and, documentary. And it,
1: there's an aesthetic to it.
0: Yeah. The aesthetic, it's, it's, it's I cool. mean, the aesthetic is cool, but, like, the special features that Criterion does and that, like, a lot of those special collector's editions do, like Shout Factory, Scream Factory, to a lesser degree, probably Arrow, where hmm. you get, like, a really interesting audio commentary from, like, a director or writer or producer or whatever. And you get, like, usually a mini documentary or a full-length documentary about the making of the movie and, like, if there's any cool deleted scenes, you'll be able to get those on Criterion Collection. So I, I do think, like, ultimately, it's really interesting, and it does have a very Library of Congress kind of, you know, protecting culturally impactful pieces of media. But I just, I, I feel like to pretend no, that it's I, only, I know like, saying. art house films is disingenuous. And and that's 100% the vibe that Criterion gives off, that it's going to be, like, these, like, rare art house films that were showed at, like illegal
1: okay yeah
0: like showings in the catacombs of france or some shit and it's like no it's like it's like a movie you could have seen at the fucking dollar show when you were like seven
1: what i will say is it isn't just the curation from it's like it's one of the movements from actually dvds to blu-rays that i don't like blu-rays right their basic aesthetic is that transparent blue thing and it's like if like i'm trying to imagine having a collection of like a hundred blu-rays or whatever and i'm just like it's kind of ugly yeah like, it just isn't charming to me. It isn't, thing Criterion, regardless, like, if there's competitors, if there's other people doing the same thing, I would be looking at those and saying like, oh, is that one the better one? But Criterion is just one of these things that it's like, yeah. they have a cool aesthetic, they have these cool special features. Look, they're overpriced. I'm not saying that isn't a problem. But there is an aesthetic that I like, and I'm watching them for free through my library. Yeah,
0: and if you were if you were purchasing them, like I do, get the aesthetic vibe of buying Criterion because they have a particular, very cohesive look to them.
1: They, I want to collect them as opposed to like these yeah. other ones where it's like, I could just watch that on a streaming service. Like, but
0: like, I, I will say like Shout Factory, Scream Factory, and Arrow do very similar things where you do get similar, if not sometimes almost the exact same special features. Oh, cool. And they, they have a different aesthetic vibe. They usually do have like a special edition kind of like cover art or whatever, or it'll come with like an extra insert poster or something that creates its own kind of, like, aesthetic vibe. Uh, they don't necessarily have, like, the cataloged numbers, I don't think, that Criterion does, which is neat. Mm-hmm. It gives kind of a Dewey Decimal System vibe to it. But, yeah, no, I I would say, like, Shout Factory is usually, like, pretty consistent as far as quality goes of, like, special features. Arrow is, like, up and coming. And then Screen Factory is just, like, a, a deviation of, of Shout Factory that does, uh, specializes in, like, more horror and genre films and stuff. Uh, but they, they're they all, like, relatively similar to what Criterion is doing, but they're generally significantly less expensive. And they usually go on sale, mm-hmm. like, pretty frequently. So you can, if you are interested in collecting movies, but you don't yeah. want to make the investment in Criterion, they're really good alternatives where you can get some some really interesting things.
1: Absolutely. So I ended up watching Stalker by Tarkovsky. Oh,
0: yeah, I totally forgot we got on this because you actually watched one, Jesus Christ. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I'm I'm very happy I finally got to watch one. So nineteen seventy-nine movie called Stalker, uh in Russian.
0: What is with you in Russian cinema lately?
1: Uh honestly, I think that and Solaris are like which is another one by the same person. Is it just is I just have wanted to watch those two for a long time.
0: Oh, Solaris is by the same guy? Yeah. Oh, okay. I I was thinking this was like multiple Russian directors that you were just like really into.
1: So, what it's about is a guy called a stalker, which in which a it's a sort of pseudo future dystopian. You don't really understand like where they are exactly, but you know it's a differentish sort of world. It's a very destitute kind of world. You find out that a stalker is someone who can take you, can take people in this sort of war zone area into the zone. And the zone is this known event, kind of looks like, or it seems to be like a nuclear fallout look to it.
0: Okay, so we're really leaning into the Cold War era vibes of yeah, Russia. Yeah, very
1: much so, very much so. So it seems to be like the heart of, let's say, a nuclear blast. But what? The, okay. But it, but it isn't like because what they say is it, actually it's a sort of space where if you get into the the room within the zone, your utmost desire will come true. Okay. And so many people are trying to get there, and stalkers can get you in, but they explain once you get there, there are many traps. Which will kill you.
0: Just giving me, like, annihilation vibes. Very,
1: very similar to annihilation. Which I loved, also.
0: Yeah, I know you did. I was kind of mad. And so
1: he meets with a professor and a writer. The writer's a very nihilistic kind of guy. The professor's a professor of physics and believes, you know, everything is solvable in terms of physics. And there's no magic left in the world. And so he's like, what is this zone? Mm -hmm. And the stalker's like, okay, like, let's go. And when you get there, of course, you firstly the aesthetics are very interesting. You know how the Matrix has that green uh, tint effect across Mm -hmm. most of it. Yeah, yeah. So this one has like a yellow tint effect. This like kind of poisonous Icarus kind of quality, yeah, constant. Yeah. And what you're seeing is there's there's sort of different bits of a mixture of trash, metal sort of that that toxic stuff that comes out of metal, like oils that come out of metal, rusting metal and stuff like that, in nature. So you're kind of seeing nature scenes that have been destroyed by industrial waste.
0: So my favorite example of like directors using like a, a, a lens tint to give a specific vibe is that especially in the early to mid 2000s, but you'll still see it now, anytime anyone is ever in a like south american or like desert type country in almost every movie but especially like action movies and thrillers it's always sepia toned Mm -hmm. so the entire the minute they get somewhere that's like sun soaked and even moderately sandy they just put an entire sepia tone on it to the point where like i genuinely am uncertain if the majority of people living in like north america think that south america is just like fucking orange all the time (laughs) It's so bizarre to me. It's like the only way anyone could ever understand that like a place is warm is if you give it an orange tint. Like you can't just put like fucking like heat rippling off the tarmac. You're in Mexico. We all know it's going to be like 95 degrees.
1: Yeah. So they're in this sort of toxic wasteland. They they have to dodge through some guards, there's a civil war, people trying to protect the zones. And actually, I do want to mention one scene where they're kind of crossing the line between normal reality into the zone and they see six tanks, decommissioned tanks that have all sorts of moss and like stuff grown over them as if they're they're from an ancient civilization that have been rusted out for, for centuries. And I saw a little behind the scenes, this was actually like six months ago or something, I saw this little behind the scenes thing about it where they wanted to have 12 but they couldn't find that many to Mm. do so they had to make this six make the point that they were they make in the movie which is that for many people if you try to come into the zone aggressively like if you're going in to attack it the zone just stops you in some way okay apparently people have tried to just militarily go in and take it over for themselves but it falls apart Okay, and so when they get in there, the stalker's trying to explain, you always have to take an indirect route. We always have to be moving around. Paths change all the time. And when they encounter things that they call traps, it's not as though it's like a bear trap or like a physical thing. they get seem they seem to get lost in their mind. Fog comes in, and they kind of forget where they are,
0: yeah, again, very annihilation-y.
1: I've seen the movie described as a metaphysical journey and this sense in which the traps and stuff aren't physical. The whole zone is of course, obviously some kind of metaphor for a journey in life, a journey towards our desires in life and how Mm -hmm. the trap of taking the obvious route, taking the direct route is often unsatisfying or stopped in a way to keep one's desires going, to keep one's life interesting You have to take indirect routes. You have to get to it. And then the whole centerpiece of the movie around them getting to the room is very fascinating. But the movie is extremely slow moving. It's very aesthetic based, like just sort of sitting within scenes and just looking at the way it's been set up. And it's it's a great vibe, but there's actually a part one and part two, and I needed to split it up into two viewings in order to, uh, you know, I'd probably recommend that. But yeah, it was an awesome experience. I absolutely loved the movie in that very pretentious way that one might love such a movie. Mm -hmm. You know, I've been studying philosophy for a long time. And this movie just, it felt like an aesthetic complement to a kind of philosophy. And I love the Russian vision of the world, too. This very dark, very, the characters are so sad and nihilistic.
0: Utilitarian and, like, you know.
1: So... Really cool experience. I'm really excited to, to try out a new one. I'll sneak preview it. I probably want to watch this one called Tokyo Story. And it's about the older generation being forgotten or uncared about by the younger generation in post-war Japan. I've heard great things about it. The director and people have talking about this director, it just seems my vibe. Very slow-moving, mm. weirdness, relationship stuff. Okay. But yeah, that, you know, since we have last talked pretty recently, I actually haven't... Watched that much more, so that was my big that was my big sharing point. But I was excited to talk about Criterion.
0: All right, I can pretty much tell you for the most part, I didn't watch anything that was like that much of an aesthetic. <laughs> but I did start watching season two of Servant, which I I mentioned yes. very very lightly on our last episode, but I didn't really go into it. I don't know if you watched Servant. No, not at all. You no? did. Okay.
1: <sighs> I'm sad because you did explain it to me a bit, but I completely forget. So this is fresh.
0: Yeah. I had, I, well, I explained it to you in, in season one, but essentially, I mean, it's M. Night Shyamalan television series on Apple TV. Okay. I'm assuming you recognize the name yes, M. Night Shyamalan, yes. and I don't need to go into it. Okay, you're just really inconsistent with names that you no, actually no, remember. No, no, you're,
1: no, you're not wrong. I was, I was more saying yes for my own embarrassment. Like, I'm at this point where you feel the need to double check if I know who M. Night Shyamalan <laughs> is, and I'm like, god damn it, this is sad. <laughs>
0: Um, so M. Night Shyamalan, in, in my I'm opinion, people might disagree with me. He is a wildly inconsistent writer-director for me. Some of his stuff I have absolutely adored. I do people mean, disagree with you there. I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to judge people if they really like his movies. People are like,
1: Lady in the Lake is my favorite movie.
0: First of all, Lady in the Water. Yep. Lady in the Water is the name <laughs> of the movie with Bryce Dallas Howard and Paul Giamatti. <laughs> you know,
1: one day I'll be a Ron Tomatoes critic, blah, 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 and I'll be getting all these things right. I swear. <laughs>
0: I really doubt it. Um, your brain just does not work for hosting this inane information, which is probably a good thing, let's be honest. But anyway, I, I find him to be a wildly inconsistent director in that there there are movies of his that are are really tremendous. Unbreakable is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. The Sixth Sense, I really, really enjoyed. Uh, I've seen it a couple of times. I do think, like, once you've got the twist, it kind of loses its, its excitement, yeah. but there is sort of a, a sad beauty throughout it that I really appreciate. But then, again, you have, you know, Lady in the Water, which is <laughs> just so not good. It's lame. Or The Happening, which is... Super bad. Probably one of the worst movies I've ever mm-hmm. seen in my life. I don't... Just the casting choice of Mark Wahlberg as a professor is like (laughs) insanity it's so it makes no sense and then the weird lack of chemistry between him and zoe deschanel supposed to be this married couple is like not even to talk about the plants trying to kill everyone those two things are like the biggest sticking points for me i
1: think mine's a bit more controversial maybe it's like i didn't mind the village. For an M. Night Shyamalan's medium.
0: I think I, I would have really loved The Village if the twist hadn't been given away so early on. Mm-hmm. Like, you're 30 minutes into the movie and you know that they're not actually in this time period. And the whole thing of the movie is that they're, like, lying to everyone that this, like, modern-day commune with Mennonite ideals isn't actually in, like, the 1800s. Yeah.
1: His, his stuff is best when the twist is done at the end.
0: Yeah, it doesn't even have to be 100% at the end, but you you don't have to give it away 100% and make it abundantly clear what you're doing with this movie in 30 minutes. Like, that just doesn't make any sense. So I went into Servant kind of thinking, okay, this could either be really engaging media or it could be really terrible. And I'm going to know within the first episode because it's only 30 minutes long. Mm-hmm. And typically when his stuff, like, when he fucks up his movies, he fucks them up within the first 30 minutes. So I figured one episode's not going to kill me. I ended up absolutely loving it. Nice. Like, just so, it's it's so weird and so engaging to me. And it's, it's very much... This is expanded upon version of the short story The Yellow Wallpaper. Like there's more really? to it. Okay. Yeah, it goes it definitely goes beyond that. There there are like strange cultish and religious sort of overtones that feel very like supernatural. There's there's more beyond, but the core dynamic of some of these characters has a really intense yellow wallpaper vibe and they dig into that even deeper in the second season. Okay,
1: that's pretty cool. That's a pretty cool selling point. Yeah.
0: I'm loving it. It gives me it gives me sort of relic vibes too in this like slow deterioration again, right. yellow wallpaper. But it's I'm really loving it. I'm super invested in these characters and they're sort of like various different types of spiraling out of control because everyone is sort of caught up in this I this sort of slow deterioration aesthetic. Uh, mm-hmm. That's centered around the main female character. It's sad and and disturbing, and I don't know. It's very heart wrenching.
1: I love that. that. You know, I've talked to you about this before, but this what people talk about, like story shapes, and one that is a lot of, is disturbing to some people is the story shape that's just from bad to worse. There are many stories. Mm-hmm. That's the whole thing. You start at often it's not even a high place. It's just like a person's in a sort of normal space of life and then it's just the whole story is how their life gets worse and worse and yeah it ends with them in tatters and like that's the story for some reason i find that kind of tragedy very uh cathartic or something i don't know how to explain yeah. it but it like feels I think it's good the
0: same. i think it's a similar reason we found midsummer so compelling mm. where it begins with this very like obvious tragedy Um, And it's very sad. And the normal trajectory for like a, a movie like that would be begin with this tragedy. And you you look through the slow upliftment of that character, the rebuilding of your life. But with something like Midsummer, Hereditary and Servant, you begin with this tragedy that you don't really understand. And then you watch this slow deterioration of everything else in this person's life. Yeah. So in this, in this situation in Servant, you have this immense tragedy that you don't totally understand. You're not totally sure what happened. And I don't, I don't want to give it away too much. Um, but you're not totally sure what happened. You just know that this woman lost her child. That part okay. isn't a spoiler. It's, you know, it's in every trailer. You know that she had a child. She had a baby. Now she doesn't. And she's not coping with it well. But you don't know... What happened to the child? You just know that mentally she's not accepting that this occurred. You have her husband, who is a very pretentious chef, and they live in this beautiful house. She's a journalist. Do so you love him. i a little bit. Um, <laughs> very Wait. much my vibe.
1: <laughs> Inside jokes that no one will get.
0: <laughs> before, before we started recording, we were talking about... Um, the pitfalls of our type as far as as mm-hmm. far as men go as far as you know sexual partners go and and one of mine was you know just i like the artist vibe and there's there's a beautiful artistry to cooking yeah and
1: what, but what you're saying about chefs it's not so much that they're a pitfall but actually that they're a pretty good package of the things the qualities you like Gen-
0: yeah generally but the He's he's a very, very high-end version of what I was talking about, right. and that tends to come with a lot more ego and, and pretension, yeah. and he plays the role really well. He's got that, um, you know, the Brooklyn hipster kind of vibe sure. who made it good, so he's like super famous now as a chef, but he's still got that sort of Brooklyn hipster vibe. They live in this beautiful brownstone. She is a journalist. Nice. Television journalist.
1: I'm really liking the vibe of the show.
0: Yeah, their life has a little bit more spotlight on it because at least within their careers, they're very well-known figures. So it's making it harder to figure out how to deal with this tragedy because they live their lives sort of in front of people in a very real way. And then you have her brother. They're sort of from a a wealthy family and she's a made-it-good, very well-known news anchor, news journalist. And he's kind of like a lounge around fuck up from money. Mm. So he likes to party, he likes to drink, he likes to do drugs, um, but he loves her to pieces. Like he's truly family first. Okay. So it's really interesting watching them cover for each other, protect each other. The lies build up, the like desperation, the deterioration of this fantasy world that they build up. And then these outside forces that come in and prop them up and pull them down in different kind of disturbing pseudo supernatural ways. Okay. Um
1: that's uh, yeah. honestly I'm very it's, sold. I really think this is super interesting. I have to check if yeah. I have access to Apple TV in any way.
0: I can probably give you my um. login, it's not that big of a deal. I just offer my login to like <laughs> everything for you. I have Apple TV for free cuz I got a work phone, oh, an iPhone, so it's free. But yeah, it's 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 really interesting and I think it's it's particularly watchable. Because the episodes are only 30 Mm -hmm. minutes rather than an hour. And I think with the strange and, and sort of complex interweaving that M. Night Shyamalan tries to accomplish, I think a lot of his pitfalls come from like having an hour and a half, two hours, two and a half hours to just keep expanding and expanding on this. Whereas having it bitten down into these like 30 minute sections forces you to, a, you spend so much time with the characters and it ends up becoming incredibly character driven. Like some of his earlier works, like the sixth sense and unbreakable, which I find much more compelling, Mm -hmm. but it it never gets to the point where it's so off the rails that you can't bring it back in, you know, like he's not giving anything away immediately, which is a huge problem for him. And it's not getting so outrageous that it's just like your suspension of disbelief can't continue
1: right no that, that that sounds so cool, and season two has been good,
0: yeah season two is has really expanded on the yellow wallpaper vibes, so there's like immediate deterioration and and it's just taking it to the next gradual step so i'm I'm really I'm really enjoying it,
1: yeah i'm I'm wondering if you'd be down for this idea. I mean I have maybe something else I could talk about, but If you wanted to do maybe one more on your side things and then go straight to things, I kind of want to talk about more Studio Ghibli stuff than just the one movie. So we could spend sort of more time on that section, but it's up to you. Just, yeah. yeah.
0: No, that's, that's fine. I haven't, I mean, I haven't watched an exorbitant amount of stuff, but I have, I have been watching other things. Yeah. So real quick that I don't have a lot to say about, about either of these. So I'm just going to rapid fire them real quick. Uh, I watched Outlander season five. Okay. It was Outlander. You know, it's fairly consistent. A lot of sex scenes. <laughs> you know, Sam Hune still gorgeous. I don't know. I The show is fun. I just feel like this is one of those types of shows where you have to keep amping up what's happening to the characters to keep it interesting. And they just aren't doing that as much anymore. So it's like nothing exceedingly major happened until the very end of the season. And it was honestly another... Do you care if I spoil it? Does anyone care if I spoil season five of Outlander?
1: <laughs> it's up to you.
0: It's just another, like, rape storyline. Mm. And at this point, I think they've done, like, three or four of them, and there's only five seasons of the show, so it's, like, getting really exhausting yeah. that all of these characters just keep getting sexually assaulted every season. And that was, like, the big, like, plot movement thing, and nothing really happened with it until the end of the of the season. So I'm like, eh, it's fine. Sam Heughan is beautiful, so if you just want to watch a mm-hmm. beautiful Scottish man, like, have a bunch of sex, then it's the show for you. And then I watched. I I just want to talk about this quickly because it is interesting, but I don't have a ton to say about it. But I watched um, a new Amazon original movie called One Night in Miami.
1: Never even heard of that one.
0: Yeah, it's it's good. It's it's pretty new. It focuses on four prominent black figures from like the fifties and sixties. Uh, so you have. Malcolm X, mm-hmm. or sorry, 60s, 60s through the 70s, so through the decade of the 60s. So you have Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, who at the time is still Cassius Clay, uh, Jim Brown, who is a very famous football player.
1: Okay, definitely did not know that one.
0: <laughs> um, and Sam Cooke, who is a singer who's okay. super popular around the same time as like, I don't know, name any popular 50s singer. who was popular mm-hmm. at the same time as then. And it's basically the four of them spending one night in Miami around the time that Cassius Clay converted to Islam and was coming out as supporting Malcolm X and his name becoming Muhammad Ali. Mm -hmm. It's about the revolution. It's about civil rights. And it's about how each of them intends to use their prominence in popular American culture to move forth the, like, civil rights agenda and and them continuously arguing with one another about who's right, who's making enough of a difference. And, yeah. like... That's cool. If, if violence is necessary, yeah. if aggression is necessary, if you should pander to, like, white culture, all of these different, like, very complicated questions for the time period and even for now. So it's, it's, it's really interesting. A lot of it takes place in one small motel room so i would say it's it's more of a slow burn and right. it's definitely more of like a conversation piece a character piece in the same way that like Denzel washington's fences is very much more of like a character interaction piece character kind of like development piece but it was really good uh Aldous Huxley is in it who is just oh that's fun one of the most gorgeous men in the world i would say it's it's very worth watching it's interesting historically
1: oh who, who did you say was in it I definitely misheard you.
0: Did I say the wrong name? His name sounds very similar to somebody else's. Aldous Hodge is what I meant. Aldous Hodge. Okay, yeah.
1: I I heard the author of, yeah, uh, Eldris Huxley, the author of Brave New World. Yes. Which I was like, that's a wild addition. But I was like, that's kind of cool.
0: No. It's Aldous Hodge. And I always confuse them because they're both Aldous, Mm -hmm. different spellings, and both H starting last names. But it's Aldous Hodge, who is tremendously just such a beautiful man he was in hidden figures and uh, straight out of compton if you watch straight out of compton which is also a very interesting movie and then it's got eli uh gory i think is how you pronounce his name but he was in um riverdale if you watch the later seasons oh, of riverdale okay. he played mad dog the um boxer
1: didn't get that far
0: uh he was in juvie with archie but yeah it's 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 really good it's really well acted it's beautiful aesthetic. Like the outfits are gorgeous, the music is stunning. Cause it's all Sam Cooke songs, and it's just really, really interesting character study. Nice.
1: Okay, I'm just gonna reposition myself
0: a second here. How dare you
1: to talk about Studio Ghibli? So, I guess a little background for the podcasting. We've, t- if you've watched some of our previous episodes, we've talked about how Lydia's recently been watching a little bit of anime, trading it off with one of her friends for a horror movie night. And yep. and actually, like, part of our history is that, like, I've always been a really big anime fan. And that has sort of been my comparison piece to Lydia's uh, horror thriller. These things yeah, like that. I don't
0: know why we never did this ourselves. Why we never did a back and forth, like, I think let's we do an anime night and a horror night.
1: tried something like it, but just moved on to other things. Like, we didn't do it itself, but we tried to talk about it, but it was just like, didn't end. And and I've also, you know, I've, I liked horror movies to begin with anyway, so it wasn't as much of a, as much of a trade off. But yeah, so I wanted to do something anime related, and we do movies for the podcast. So. What? Ghibli.
0: We do movies for the podcast? As opposed
1: to shows, because most of the anime I love is shows. That's, uh, things. But Ghibli's the big I'm one being for, an asshole. for, uh, anime movies. And I, I have a strange, I think, relationship with Ghibli movies. I do think they're good. And some of them really mean a lot to me. But they don't they don't quite strike me as what I love in anime in general. And so there is this a little bit of a disconnect. I think they're very focused on one of the misconceptions that I don't like in anime, which is that it's for kids. I think Ghibli movies, a lot of them do work for kids. But a lot of what I love in anime is that it's not necessarily... There is lots of stuff that is, but I think... Right. So there is this disconnect. That being said, I do think the movies are really fascinating and say different things about Japanese culture and ideas. So we'll get into a bit of that. The one we watched was called Whisper of the Heart, which is one that I don't think I've heard anyone ever talk about. So, but it is a Miyazaki.
0: Yeah, i would never even heard of it. Well, it's... Well, it's... it's, Okay, let's be clear. It's written by Miyazaki.
1: And then directed by Yoshifumu Kondo. I don't know what else they uh, directed, but I didn't see on the Ghibli list itself, I didn't see them directing too many other Ghibli movies. But they might have been involved in other things. I think... Well, I've been talking for a bit here, so... What did you think about the actual plot and how it feels compared to other Ghibli movies that kind of stuff?
0: I mean, look. The thing that I love about Ghibli movies and I think the thing that a lot of people love, at least North Americans love about Ghibli movies is is sort of the enchantment and the yes. and the sort of spirituality of Ghibli movies and this doesn't really have that in the same way. It doesn't even reach the level of like enchanting and charming that Kiki's Delivery Service has, mm-hmm. even though I would probably put them at a similar age range as far as like who would be who this would be targeted for. I it wasn't bad. The core story, I think Was interesting. I liked the concept of it. I liked the struggle of the characters trying to find their passions while also mediating that with parental expectations for their education. Because I think that's something that's like, very relatable. Mm -hmm. But it's it's like there were all of these pieces of her being this writer of her being so imaginative of him being so passionate about music. But nothing was super hyper-connected. So you spent, like, a lot of time with her as the main character, and you see these minor interactions of her with her family, or of her with that grandpa, or of her with the male character, but it's, like, five minutes here and there. So you don't really feel like any of these relationships in the context of the movie are particularly well-rounded. So when when things advance mm-hmm. between the character relationships... It feels super unearned to me. And that was kind of weird. There was there was a disconnect for me where I just wasn't invested in these relationships in a way that I felt like was integral yeah. to the message of the movie.
1: I think that aspect is actually shared between a lot of Ghibli films in that they're, they're often the relationships happening are kind of people just meet and are instantly yes. in love and instant things. But... Yeah.
0: The charmingness, the enchantment, the spirituality is amped up to a degree that you can get past yes. the lack of of character development. You you don't need the characters to be hi- like, or at least their relationships to be hyper well rounded, because it's it's got a fairy tale aspect to it, mm-hmm. right? Like it's the Japanese version of a Disney movie, but even more spiritually interesting. This doesn't have that either. So when there's relationship development. It feels even more unearned because you don't have that fairy tale enchantment either to fall back on.
1: Yeah. My take on the movie is that it is a more realistic, grounded version, which actually a couple of the more obscure non Miyazaki Ghibli films I've watched do have a similar vibe. I actually really enjoyed this one called Up on Poppy Hill, which is about um, an old clubhouse for a school. And it's like one of these very old wood style. Places that you'd see maybe um, in well you you know how that that Japanese style of wood and paper like sort of palaces and stuff like this.
0: I was thinking like Stand by Me treehouse vibes, very different thing.
1: Yeah, it's, it is more. It has it's more full wood. There's isn't paper, but it is it actually that that's actually true. It is very just like treehouse like and all this kind of things built on top of each other. You can see the history of the place within okay. its kind of, and they're like we don't want this torn down because all of our clubs sort of coexist within this weird. Organism that has been created out of this place. But they're like, no, we need to tear it down and make make the new, right? And this goes to the heart of what a lot of Ghibli films are about and a lot of Japanese media in general, the World War. And the mm. pre-World War, uh, uh, an attachment to tradition, attachment to old values, an attachment to that the beautiful history of Japan. But that led them, in certain aspects, to some bad decisions at the end of the war or even who they joined with in the war and whatnot. And so there's this... Desire on the one hand to keep with that tradition, to stay Japanese, but also post-war to deal with the fact that not only were they defeated, but they also see themselves as making regretful decisions. And so do you amplify and take a very Western approach to things? Do you accelerate in your own way? There's a lot of decisions to be made. And in a lot of Ghibli films, you can see this difficulty of industrial like princess mononoke is probably one of the things although that one's more against nature but industrialization versus tradition history and nature
0: i would even argue like in in some regards howl's moving castle has a lot of industrialization to it as well
1: yeah and so in this one i see the characters as whimsically wishing for the more fantastical elements of life but the movie not doing the spirited away thing not doing that then just going to the place right it, it yeah. it's more grounded in reality and up on poppy hill does the same thing it remains grounded while showing showing the enchantment of everyday life i think in up in poppy hill kind of works better for me because the enchantment is clear within real real things that clubhouse itself and they're attempting to save it feels valuable yes. in itself and- Whereas here, it was stories.
0: Well, not even just stories, because I do try to do that in, in, in this movie as well, where you have the, you know, violin maker and yep. the music, and you have this this old grandpa who works in an antique shop repairing various different antiquities, including old instruments, but also old clocks and old toys, and the enchantment of his experience finding and restoring and maintaining these small pieces of history. So they're trying to do it, but they spend such small periods of time In the antiquity shop, small periods of time with her imagination and her story writing process, small periods of time with the music and the enchantment of like the violin and violin craftsmanship, that you never get enough of it. It feels jagged and disjointed because none of it feels fleshed out enough to give me that kind of enchantment that we're looking for, that we're missing here.
1: Yeah, and so... Uh, yeah, I, I agree to a certain degree. I do think there are some moments that are somewhat successful, not necessarily more successful than other things. And I think that's another problem, that it's like what it does best is maybe done better in other things. But I actually like the morning scenes or the scenes where they overlook towns. Things like this, like at dawn, they look at a town and they're yeah. talking about the mist. The way those scenes work, they really do hit that that beautiful nostalgia feeling of going onto a patio and overlooking a s- sort of trees mixed in with concrete houses or little village places. There's something that feels... I don't know. It, it touches the human heart when you see yeah. that kind of dreamscape. I think,
0: I think that's what they were trying to do with the fucking John Denver song that kept coming up, where it's supposed <laughs> to be this... this
1: aggressive.
0: Because it's, it's, it's going to be stuck in my head for a week. I hate this song, but I love it so much. Country Roads. Yeah.
1: It was a strange choice. for It the, was
0: a very weird choice. And the way that she translates it, she takes the English lyrics, and she translates them into Japanese. And the way that she translates them creates this juxtaposition between this sort of folksy, very country, like, live-on-the-land song and turns it into something, having a conversation about the differences between the countryside and the sort of concrete jungle that Japan is becoming in that time period. exactly. So it's interesting, but A, it's just an odd song choice that they played, probably a dozen times in this goddamn movie <laughs> in like on violins and mandolins yeah. and her singing it and it just so many times but also like i just it didn't fit with any of the other things and like you have her writing stories but she's also translating weird pieces of americana and he's a musician but he only ever plays the song one time so i don't really understand what the song was trying to do in relation to mm-hmm. all of these other aspects of like the beauty of everyday life. It was very odd.
1: Yeah. Well, I think the song relates to the nostalgia one could feel for countryside's homefulness, but they're in a kind of different space where now, you know, she lives in a, in a concrete kind of apartment, but she's seeing these space. And well, that's another thing that they show the enchantment of the small cramped Japanese style apartment, which is, it's both not charming and charming at the same time, right? Everything mm-hmm. is utilitarian uh, and very cluttered, but at the same time, there's a charm in which they have to kind of be homely together. They have to kind of uh, do things in a close proximity. There's an amusing, not not just amusing, but there's a cool Japanese outlook and, and the way the aesthetic tells you the story in itself that I've always loved about these types of things. Um, and then that transition when she goes from there to the violin shop or the antique shop and sees a same sort of clutter, but now with more historical, more whimsical objects, I think there's a, a foil or a parallel being trying to be drawn there that, no, even your everyday life today is has a little bit of magic to it.
0: And I agree that that's what they're trying to do. I just don't think it's done effectively.
1: I, I think you're right.
0: Yeah, it's it's very, like, minute by minute.
1: You have to draw it out. It's
0: jagged. It's not interconnected. It's It doesn't feel like it's a very cohesively woven story.
1: Yeah. But I, I did enjoy the looks of some of those things. I did enjoy uh, the Dawn landscape. Some of the soundscapes they do for some of these scenes actually sort of worked for me. But yeah, I mean, it's an underrated, underwatched Ghibli film for a reason. I think it yeah. it doesn't, it isn't quite successful enough in any direction to be worth watching over other ghibli films
0: yeah i think i think the potential is there i think it could have been something but i i feel like a lot of of these pieces were just overall underutilized and realistically they should have cut down a little bit to make this work better like make it about the books and the stories or make it about the antiquities and the restoration or make it about the music. But to do all of these little pieces, there just wasn't enough time to draw it out in a way that was meaningful.
1: Yeah. The story kind of goes, Yeah, I,
0: mean, I guess we probably could have synopsized it. Well, no,
1: I, I, it's more of an interesting point that I, I was curious about. It's like, so the boy is a violin maker or like a maker of instruments and he wants to go to Italy to go to one of the best schools to become a violin maker. Well, so
0: he's a violin. He's a violin player. He plays the violin mm-hmm. at a very high level. His parents want him to go to one of the or finish his high school and mm-hmm. go to you know a a really good university. But he, after working with his in his grandfather's shop, has become incredibly invested in the idea of restoration, specifically around violin making and and restoration and repairing so in relation to his passion for music he wants to learn more effectively how to do these things and go to this like violin maker and restoration school in italy Mm -hmm. or program or or whatever it is
1: and so then she feels yeah she feels the need to sort of catch up with him or to be on the same sort of level of ambition or something so she gets really hardcore into uh writing stories and you see her kind of enter into a dreamscape of being stuck within her stories. And actually I wanted to mention a cool, um, one of the best anime that I saw come out last year. And I might even say my favorite anime of last year called keep your hands off Izokin." And that one is really cool. It's like just a 12 episode anime series, but it's about three girls who together try to make anime together, like try to draw out and make stuff at their school. And in that one, the sort of dreamscapes you go into in this movie with her when she's writing, they do, but through what they're animating. So you see what they're animating and actually reverse directions to where you see real life, quote unquote, which is, of course, still animated, have moments where what they're talking about, they're like, ah, this is how you'd make a fan look like it's moving with few frames. And then it shows a picture in their real life of a fan moving in that way. So, so it's like it is them doing the okay. technique that they're talking about to show right. it, and it's this really cool meta feeling, and that, in my opinion, is a much more successful version of what they're trying to do in this movie, which is her writing, and they show this kind of whimsical and actually very, in a way, low amount of an- animation dreamscape world where often you're just seeing kind of yeah. flat stills of just this is the fairy tale that's happening, or this is the yeah,
0: it's it's got a stop motiony vibe
1: you're a movie. I mean, you have an opportunity to really bring that yeah. things and I think it 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 yeah, it's not very successful.
0: It feels like it's trying to do the same kind of thing with stories that was done to a much greater effect. Now this isn't animated, but to a much greater effect in something like the Neverending Story yeah. or even um, Pagemaster with Macaulay yeah. Culkin where you literally get enveloped or become a part of the story but are also still the writer or narrator of that story. And that, I think, like, those two movies utilize the concept of creating the world of the story in your mind as you read. They do that so effectively and in such an exciting and fun way that's very engaging for the audience. I feel like that's something they could have done here, but they just didn't take it to that necessary next level.
1: Mm-hmm. The the title kept striking me in my mind while watching it too, about what it is to have, like, what is this whisper of the heart? And I do, do connect it to the basic idea of the metaphor, or the where it's like, it's a Ghibli film that's trying to be realistic, and it's there f- having this whimsical feeling towards the full fantastical landscape, right? And even this idea of journeying to Italy to do uh a thing is a kind of whimsical desire. It's not something that's realistic yes. for their
0: Yeah. I mean I, I think I think realistically the whisper in the heart is just supposed to represent their untapped passions, right? Because you, yes. you have you have the grandfather talking about how each person has a stone within them yeah. and you know, it's raw and it's it's rough, it's untouched. But as you explore your interests, explore your desires and your passions or your talents, you begin to polish away the roughness of this stone. And if you're one of the lucky few, you, it can, your passion can become a rare and valuable gemstone. Mm-hmm. Right so I think really The Whisper in the Heart is is for her she has all of these concepts all of these various interests but she's never worked hard at refining them in any yep. real way and this is about her learning how to refine them into a lifelong journey for herself.
1: I think the Jagnes you're talking about comes in here though because he the grandfather character also mentions that he prefers the stone In its raw state. Yes. And there is something to that, the whisper of heart where she's into music, she's into writing, she's into these multiple passions. And in the moment of the story, there's actually in a way more charm than when someone has to do the strenuous work and just become an amazing thing. So there's a charm to this moment in their lives.
0: And I think that's what they're trying to say between these two characters sort of trying to find this balance between the obligations of their parents, where their parents want them to follow this very strict journey with their academics, going into good high schools, into good universities, getting stable jobs, and then wanting to explore their their more flighty, let's say, passions, um, and trying not to disappoint both themselves and their parents. And there is a sort of youthful exuberance where... I don't know what I want to be, but I have all of these loves in my life. And there's sort of a heart wrenchingness to that in that her, her parents are continuously telling her to not necessarily disregard these things, but that there needs to be more weight put in academics or, you know, she'll, she'll go nowhere in life. So she needs to enjoy these things as hobbies, but put her, her hard work and her passion into what she considers boring academics
1: yeah and i think in part it's interesting because the storyline and the message of this one is in a way more clear than other Ghibli's, but that might be a bit to its detriment because when i think of a spirited away when i think of a house moving castle a lot of people will mention they're like i don't actually know what it's really about like everyone has their theories and everyone has their things but like if you look at how it's more the journey you you go on with these characters and the charm and the the fantastical things that are happening. You just learn to love the characters. You love their relationship. You love the chemistry. You love the atmosphere. And mm-hmm. uh, that's harder when the atmosphere and the things you're in in a movie like this is so just grounded in reality. And you're just getting yeah. little bits of uh, ideas of dreams of different areas or, or thoughts or yeah. nostalgia. I think...
0: I think one that that kind of meets that balance really, really well, where it's not overboard in its fantastical nature, Mm -hmm. but it's not so grounded in reality that when it does have moments of fantasy, it feels disjointed is Kiki's delivery service. Mm -hmm. You know, like you have this fanciful, she's this little adorable witch coming into her powers and exploring the city with like a new found exciting way to do so on her broomstick. But it's still, in many ways, grounded in reality in that she's very young. She has to work to help um, her family and support her family. She has these, like, interactions with her small townspeople and how she relates to them and how she helps protect them or advance their little, like, community. So in a lot of ways, there is a very, like grounded-in-reality message in the interconnectedness of this, like, found family, community family kind of situation, but you still get the fanciful sort of magical wonderment of her flying around on her broomstick and seeing her city and her small community in a brand new way, seeing it as this one cohesive organism that she gets to be a part of, but also gets to view from the outside.
1: No, yeah, I I agree. I think contextualizing it within the rest of, of the Ghibli films, I mean, I, Keys is kind of just, in a way, the better version of this. And then there's a, there's other sort of themes that Ghibli movies tend to touch on, which aren't touched on here. And so it, it's sort of, they have their own sort of strengths. And this one doesn't really fit into having its own great strength. Actually, I did want us to talk about this, that it does um have the bits that are used in a few other things this for example there's a bunch of cats and animals that are uh, sort of around in this journey and those yeah. are actually taken up in anim, animals play a, a big part of the whimsy of so many ghibli films and this idea of yeah the liveliness of children of animals of nature is always in the background and that's sort of what breeds life into some of these movies in a way that i think is actually very hard to see in western media natural whimsy is just not something that like the idea of just seeing a dog barking that isn't a warning for something or but it's more of a charm or a fun moment in a movie is i think much rarer over here
0: yeah i mean you you would definitely get it in children's movies, but I think in particular animated movies. Um, But a lot of the times it's dependent on the anthropomorphized nature of these animals. So they're animals, but they're literally communicating with the child in some kind of a way. You know what I mean? Like, or the animals are communicating with each other about the child in, in like a bolt or Oliver Twist or, You know, even Mulan where she has her dragon or you've got your snowman in Frozen. True. The only one I can think of where you don't have a lot of like communication between these animals and there is just sort of a whimsical connection are things like the dog and the raccoon in Pocahontas. You can tell that there is a connection between the human and the animal, but there isn't a direct need for them to literally communicate with, with any sort of words.
1: Yeah, I think the anthropomorph... Wow. That word is just Anthropomorphization of animals is part of the sort of difference I'm seeing between the two, where I think in a lot of Japanese media, nature itself is interesting or filmed or brought to attention for its own sake. In that it's not necessarily wrapped up immediately within the narrative of the story. They don't bring in a dog or bring anything for comedy or for a warning or for to be killed in order to make you interested in the character, right? Often there is, in the background, trees, landscapes, uh, small children, dogs, cats, just doing things in order to get that sense of lived in, and actually even all that stuff about the clutter of rooms and the things, I think often there's a feeling, in in particular in Ghibli movies, maybe not in other anime, but this feeling of atmosphere which is built up, has a history to it already, which of course, Western media has to some degree, I just feel its sense of spirituality more sense of history more in these.
0: I think in a lot of ways, you have to look at the difference between those two cultures, right? I mean, if you're looking at North America versus or North America, as we know it now versus Japan, there isn't a lot of lived in history in this country for white people, really. I mean, like you have indigenous cultures that are, you know, centuries older than we have ever been on this land and they have very interesting engaging spiritually relevant cultures but Canada and America don't have that right like our countries are only Mm -hmm. you know 250 plus years old and the majority of any kind of real lived-in historical culture is either like patently abhorrent or like colonization and slavery or comes from Europe so while American culture has been significantly impactful as far as like popular culture goes on the world stage, it's so much newer that it's hard yeah. to get that same sense of like lived in very spiritual, very historical kind of vibe from just the appearance of things around. Yeah, um, Like you can get some sense of that using like mid-century modern furnishings or or Victorian design, like Gothic kind of structures. But even that gives either a very specific time period vibe and not so much like a history feeling or a European aesthetic.
1: Yeah, that is one of the differences. I, I feel that often nature is the sense of the frontier in American media yeah. and the sense of something to be taken over and developed upon. In Japanese, there is this tension within them about the, the rapid development and the rapid industrialization that they are undergoing. But this very strong pushback from the tr- from tradition and nature as two roots of their that push back against their desire to just fully industrialize mm. Ghibli more than any other sort of school of Japanese animation I've seen so clearly engages with these questions over and over again in different movies, not necessarily this one again isn't the best example of that, but you know yeah.
0: something like um. My Neighbor Totoro, or uh, Howl's Movie Castle, Spirited Away, these things have, like, real, you, you can tell, even if you don't necessarily understand it from, like, a North American perspective, you can tell that they're having real conversations about industrialization, about loss of cultural heritage, and about inherent spirituality. Mm-hmm. And And these are, like, I'm not even saying that you can't have these kinds of like atmospheric conversations in North American media. Obviously we do because we, we often talk about atmospheric or esoteric kind of films, but we don't have them in a sort of whimsical childlike sense. Our version of that media in a lot of ways is, you know, related to horror or related to thriller or those types of genres, so I think there's there's a certain brand of innocence that Studio Ghibli brings to the table that makes these difficult esoteric kind of conversations very enchanting, very charming, very palatable. Mm-hmm. So you can have conversations about the journeys of life and death, about children dying young and things like that and still be able to to enjoy it and and smile and laugh along with these characters in a way that's incredibly foreign i think in our media
1: yeah and back to the uh, a whisper of heart and this moment in their lives of this turning point which this idea of this turning point of choosing the passions or work the expectation is so much on the side of a re- of a reliable path in the japanese but and that the the expression of um rebellion comes very immediately in the passionate one. I think there is a sense in which we have, you'll have parents in Western media who are like, you need to do the reliable thing. And that's a clear thing, but you're almost always immediately on the side of, you're sort of going into the movie with the side that the cultural consensus is that passions are the way to go. I think it's a little more, troublesome in the japanese sphere
0: i think especially with with from the millennial perspective the millennial generation we were often taught like follow your dreams Mm -hmm. you can be anything you can do anything if you put your mind to it um like your passions are important all of this kind of stuff so even though there are parents or there are teachers who direct you more to ideas of stability insofar as like attending a good university you can attend that good university but get an English degree or a poetry degree or like an art history degree or whatever it is. And that's still like at least seen as, you know, you're following academics, you're taking the stable route, you're going the standard projected direction, even if you're not getting a business degree. Whereas I think, I I think it just, at least in these Ghibli films is portrayed in a very different light where the, the path of stability is ingrained at a at a much younger age than mm-hmm. it is in North America and in North American media, where, like, you're starting to take these aggressive standardized tests to get into these higher ranking level schools at younger and younger ages. Like, our main character in Whisper of the Heart is 15 years old, and she has to take her exams to get into high school, yep. which is a completely different educational track than what we would be used to in, in North American education, either the U.S. or Canada. And these standardized tests are rigorous and incredibly difficult. And if you fail it, you cannot get into a good high school. And if you can't get into a good high school, you literally are incapable of getting into a good university. That path is completely blocked for you. So you have to be a consistent A-level type student. In, through the entirety of your education, you you don't have an opportunity to waver. You don't have the same opportunity to self discovery or even just general teenage fuck uppery that like is is commonplace in mm. North America.
1: And this might be one of the angles on the on the rough stone, right? The beauty of the emerald inside is not necessarily in the finished polished state and this is why the grandfather might enjoy the he's saying of a nostalgia or a or a love for people of a young age in that it's before the culture sort of forces them that even if you have a passion what you then have to do is be a completely reliable super doer of that passion and her expression of herself as singing on the one hand and writing on another and sort of finding herself and doing that that journey is you sort of see her become exhausted and lose herself a little bit when she has to nail it down and be like, "I'm gonna do." Yeah. She she runs rougher becomes, to her parents and stuff like this. Yeah, too. she
0: becomes more aggressive. She becomes more like inwardly dependent um, and defiant in a very new way than she was comparatively before, where she was flighty and she was whimsical, but she she still had like a lot of affection and and outward love, even though she was forgetful and put her passions before standard practices or whatever but yeah i think you're right i think you're onto something i think really it's the beauty that he finds in like the stone in the geode in the raw form is the beauty that's there before the pressure of you know the societal norms chip away at all of these extra pieces that it finds superfluous Mm -hmm. and it reveals you know a beautiful stone in that it is perfect based on what the society deems a stone should look like mm-hmm. a gemstone should look like this should have no imperfections should be exactly cut in these right ways should be perfectly polished and always shiny but you've lost all of the interesting things that imperfections damages or extra darker bits add on to it
1: and and you know not to press the point too hard but for me it does connect up to this idea of the expression of nature the expression of tradition the expression of history in that those things require a kind of not polishing all the rough edges not constantly
0: Mm
1: -hmm. putting everything into a bow but allowing things to take on the history the tradition the the allowance of that past or to to allow for natural imperfections, natural occurrences, which no one intended or planned to do or polished in a certain way. Um, of course, in a Ghibli film, of course it's all animated. Of course, nature itself yeah. is made artificially, but I think it's beautiful that they're able to bring forth an impression of nature, like great painters, right? An impression yeah. of a great landscape painter is almost nature brought forth like, in, when you walk on a regular walk in an everyday, you might not notice nature as much. But when you're brought to a museum and brought to this painting, of course, it's much less natural than a walk. Yeah. But there's a way in which it forces you to reengage with nature. You see it and you're like, wow, I actually should appreciate landscape and these things more.
0: Well, then, again... It's, it's about the perspective, too. When you see the painting, you're seeing the perspective of the artist, right? You're seeing yep. what the artist is getting out of nature, and it's giving you a new outlook on it. Yes. Instead of it just being something that's in the way of your general existence, it's, it's something that this artist has engaged upon. And what they're showing you is not necessarily what it looks like, but it's what it's the feelings and the impressions that this scene has given that artist. Yeah. So it's their retelling of it. Um, and I think I think ultimately, like, that's, again, like you said, what Whisper of the Heart is trying to do, especially when you have this old world meets new world kind of vibe with the grandpa and his friends, yeah. and then with her parents and her sister, who are definitely more on that standardized societal tract.
1: Exactly. I would love to get into Princess Mononoke and the amazing debate yeah. that happens there, spirited away in the whimsy of, of this crazy journey it's crazy spirituality of japan in there but you know this is not exactly the place for an in-depth look at each of those but for sure ghibli films are just this in each an incredible journey incredible aesthetic just they are they are unique pieces of art right that you cannot get a replacement for
0: even the studio ghibli video games the Nino Cooney kuni games oh i
1: haven't gotten a chance to try them out
0: Honestly, Nino Kuni in a lot of ways is very similar structurally to like a Zelda game. Mm. And th- don't get me wrong, Zelda's awesome. I-, I love the Zelda games, but there's a kind of next level sort of fantasy and and storytelling that occurs in Nino Kuni that really is is so enchanting, so engaging that it draws you in. So rather than just watching, you know, Princess Mononoke, which is very engaging, n- the Nino Kuni games, because it's it's a first person type puzzle and and fighting game it really makes you feel like you're in this world it envelops you in a new way and honestly those games are like very basic they're very standard the storylines are very like simplistic in the same way that like a zelda game is Mm -hmm. but the animation and and the whimsy of it is so engaging that that whole universe can just envelop you and you can fall into that game for hours just to be in that sort of childlike wonder awesome I mean, I think, I think at that point, that's all we have to say. But I, I do want to reiterate, if you haven't watched Studio Ghibli movies, uh, at least in Canada, they're on Netflix and they're very worth watching.
1: Yeah, Netflix got them all. So that's really
0: cool. Yeah. yeah, And if you're not a fan of, of watching them subtitled, uh, I believe in... North America, they're redistributed by Disney. So all of the American voiceover is, Dis- is you know, well-known American actors and Disney actors. So they-, they do a really good job. So you can watch it dubbed and it's-, it's not going to be watching like, you know, jagged, janky dubbing in an anime. But yeah, highly recommend pretty much all of them. Thank you for listening to us, Yammer. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at FansLabPod. We also have our individual Twitters, which are linked on that page. Uh, please send us your recommendations, uh, your questions, bug us. We would love to hear from you. Uh, thanks for listening.
1: Thank you. Bye. Bye.